0: So every time a setback happens, I fought back. Two ways I could put my head down and just give up, or I can fight. And I always chose the paths to fight because I felt that was not fair. That's not right. And I deserve better.
1: This is the Indianness podcast stories of success from leaders and changemakers of Indian origin. Why have Indians achieved success across so many different disciplines around the globe? I have no idea, but let's find out together because every story is unique and we really have a very unique one today. I am very, very excited to have Congressman Shreetanadar with me today. He serves in the U.S. House of Representatives from the third district in Michigan. He's been a very successful entrepreneur and a member of the Michigan State Assembly. I invited him on the show, however, because he has a remarkable story of success, failure, and then again, success, and that to in entirely different fields. Welcome, Congressman Thanedar. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on our podcast.
0: Thank you, Sanjay. And you can call me Sri.
1: Shree, it's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much. Shree, you have a very, very unique and unconventional background in many ways, really a fascinating background. Can you just walk us through the journey? I mean, if you can start with where were you born a little bit about right at the beginning of your journey?
0: Sure. So I was born in Belgavi, in a small town in Karnataka, southern part of India. And six sisters, a brother. When I was 14 years old, my father lost his job. And being an older son, you know, culturally in India, the older son is supposed to take care of the family after Mm -hmm. the father. So I ended up taking up odd jobs right from the time I was 14, cleaning offices helping doctor's offices, being a janitor. And that's how I supplemented my family's income. Got a bachelor's degree in chemistry. And the nice thing about it is that my education was all publicly funded because I was poor. And what that allowed me to do is get a bachelor's and a master's degree without a loan. I graduated with no loans to pay, which is what I am trying to do here in the US is make sure that education is accessible to all people, regardless of their income level. So after that, I worked at a bank initially. Actually, I had a job as a bank, as a cashier in State Bank of India. And my mother was just happy. Now that you got a good stable job, your life is set. But I wasn't, and I wanted to do better. Then I worked at the Bhabha Atomic Research Center, which is India's nuclear research program. And then I wanted to come to U.S. because I wanted to get a promotion in my job at Baba Atomic Research Center. But the head of my department would not allow me to do a master's while I was working at the government job. And against his approval, I decided to join the master's program. I worked at nights, during the day I went to school and I got a first class and a gold medal in my master's program. And my supervisor yet will not accept that because he thought that he did not authorize my education, my master's. So with that happening, I just decided to come to U.S. I thought U.S. may be the place I need to be where I could be free and I could, you know, be recognized for what my skills are. And it also help me pull my family out of poverty.
1: Wow. That's an amazing story. But just going back, you had six sisters, Right. Yes. That's uh, pretty tough. You were the only brother with
0: six sisters? I was the older son. and was son. younger son, yeah.
1: Yes, wow. So how was the environment at home, Shri?
0: Well, look, we had a one-bedroom apartment where, you know, 10 of us lived. In the evening, my job was to take sleeping bags and put them all over the floor. Once I put all the sleeping bag on the floor, the entire apartment or the house was occupied, every space um, on the floor. And then when in the morning, when we wake up, my job is to put put those sleeping bags away because then we can use the house for daily activities. So it was tough. It was tough to pay medical bills. It was tough. But sometime there was a time I remember where we had not eaten anything for last twenty four hours. and everybody was hungry. sometime, When we get milk, only the younger children will get milk, but the older ones won't. At one time, we were all hungry. We haven't eaten anything for 24 hours. My mother went to the neighbors. She borrowed a couple of cups of rice powder. She boiled a pot of water, cooked Mm -hmm. through that rice powder in it, made a paste. And that was our only meal in the last 24 hours.
1: Wow. So what kind of impressions were being created in your mind at that time that was a Tough upbringing that you wanted to kind of get out of that, that scarcity of resources. What was going on in your mind at that time?
0: We lived uh, with uh, no running water in the house, wow. uh, often no electricity. We had to go walk a block away. Sometimes, I had to go to the river and dig a hole in the sand to connect drinking water. I really had gone through the pain of poverty, the stigma of poverty, the pain the struggles my family had to go through. Mm-hmm. And I, very first thing I wanted to do was, I never wanted my family to suffer again. As I became an adult, mm-hmm. I wanted to help my family. And when I came over here, I saw people don't, even in America, which is supposed to be one of the richest, the richest country mm-hmm. in the world. We, in my district, we have 25% of people are still living at or below poverty, People are struggling. They can't pay their water bill. They often get their homes foreclosed because they can't pay their mortgage. COVID exposed so much of healthcare disparities. And having grown up and struggled through, I remember the days when I used to, you know, when we needed some money for healthcare for my sister or my father. I would go to the pawn shop, local pawn shop, take some of my mom's uh, wedding jewelry, say, pawn it and get money from the money lenders. at a huge interest. And when I see in Detroit, where I represent, there are payday lenders that are charging 36%, 48% interest. And it comes home to me. This is really how I lived my life. And I'm seeing the struggles some people have, and I want to help i want to make a difference in people's
1: lives well i think well that's very very commendable but in terms of education when you were struggling through all of this what was the motivating where your sisters getting educated what was driving you towards i mean you got a lot of education you got your bachelors then silently or quietly got a master's. What was the motive? Was it the just getting out of poverty? Is that what was driving you? Or is what was the reason for getting so much education, So
0: When I started, when I was in high school, I was not a very good student. Mm-hmm. You know, I was maybe like a B student. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I realized that if I have to, and then I felt the pressure that I need to help my family. And the best way for me to be able to get a good job be able to be employed, get good wages, is to have good education. And when I realized that, I really devoted and focused on my education. And then I got my bachelor's degree very quickly. My mother would keep pushing me into higher grades. So often in in a single year, I would do two grades. Not because I was smart, but because my mother needed me to start earning fast. So at four, at the age of 14, I was graduated from high school. At the age of 18, I graduated from college. And then I left the town to get a job at the Atomic Research Center in Mumbai. Mm-hmm. And I just kept struggling. And then when I didn't get what I wanted in my job at the Atomic Research Center, despite having completed my master's, that's when I started applying to U.S. universities. And I got admission into a Ph.D. program in Akron, Ohio. So Mm. all I needed to do was go to the American consulate and get a student visa and come Mm. here. I was 24 years old then. And in those days, you have to go five o'clock in the morning, stand outside the American consulate because they'll only take so many applicants in a day. So I go there, stand at five o'clock, no water, no breaks. I'm standing in line because I can't lose my spot in the line, in the queue. And I got called for an interview at 11 o'clock. And then I had studied in Marathi medium. I didn't speak very good English then. And this lady, her name was Virginia. She was behind the bars, behind the window. And I'm standing outside and she's asking me questions. And about 10 minutes passed and she looks at me and she says, Mr. Tanithar, I'm not convinced that you should be going to the United States and I'm denying your visa. Oh, wow. And so she puts the stamp rejected on my papers and she pushes those papers outside, out of this window. And that shattered all my dreams. And I've never fainted in my life before. But that day after hearing the news, I lost conscience and Mm. I fell down to the ground. In the consulate? In the consulate, in that window. I just fell to the ground, lost consciousness. And I don't know how long I was unconscious, but when I opened my eyes, I saw Virginia now has come out of her window and she was standing right next to me. And she had a glass of water in her hand for me, but no visa.
1: Really?
0: And then after... By rules, you could reapply, give more evidence and reapply. Mm -hmm. So a week later, I gave more evidence and reapplied to make even a stronger case. And promptly, they now no interview. They just say, Come back at four o'clock, we'll let you know. Mm. Four o'clock, I go there, I see her signature, the same stamp, visa rejected. Oh my God. So third time, I gave her more documents. A week later, she promptly rejects my visa for the third time. So fourth time, I said, what am I going to do now? I'm unemployed. I'm doing some home tutoring. And I write to my professor in the US. And he sends me a beautiful letter addressed to the consulate saying that this young man is somebody I need. We are working on, this is 1979, Mm. we're working on the future of energy. We're working on electric batteries. And that's what his research is going to be about. And we need him. And so I thought if she saw a letter from an American professor, that would make all the difference. So I put that letter on top of my stack of papers that she had rejected and submitted for the fourth time. So I come there with a lot of expectation in the evening, but I see the same thing, stamped, visa rejected, her signature. Now, three, four weeks go by, I'm really hurting, no job. I really wanted to come to US. I have nothing new to give her. So I take the same papers that she rejected last time and resubmitted for the fifth time. So they come say, come back at four. So I go there at four. They said, give me your passport. I said, why do you need my passport? They said, we can't give you a visa if you don't give us your passport. So I said, what, Miss Virginia, change your mind? And they said, no, no, no. She's gone to America for her vacation. And another counselor looked at your papers and he thought they were perfect. Wow. And with that, then I come to US, work on my PhD. I get a PhD in chemistry. I worked on... I did one of the early stage of electric batteries, polymer batteries, and then worked as a scientist. And at some point, I felt I want to be an entrepreneur. And so in 1990, I didn't had an idea for a product or service, nor did I have any capital. But I wanted to be on my own because the company that I work as a chemist, I did a lot of innovation. But because of the internal politics, I felt like my accomplishments were not recognized. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I felt that the best way for me to do that is to start my own business, something I can control, something I can contribute to. And with that in mind, I found a chemical analysis testing lab that did a lot of interesting technological solutions to people's problems, whether there is a pattern dispute between two companies and one company wants to know if the others is infringing on their technology. And this little lab, 3 person lab, annual revenues were only about $150,000, three employees. And this owner wanted to retire. So I offered to buy that lab and she wanted $75,000 to sell that business to me. And I, of course, had no 75,000. I had just bought a 100K house and used up all of my money as a down payment. So I had no money. So I go to the bank and the banks keep rejecting my application. Six banks rejected my application to buy these assets, which were really, you know, it was a good thing, but they would not. So finally, I found a bank which will give me about 50,000. I went back to the owner. She took a note back for 25,000. I had 3,000 on my credit card. And that's how I became a business owner in
1: 1990. Wow. Now, but there was no entrepreneurship in the family like your father or anybody was not an entrepreneur, right?
0: Yeah, my father worked as a clerk for the government, never had any business background. Even though when I worked as a chemist, I went in the evening part-time and I got an MBA, but absolutely no business background. But I really wanted to be control of my own finances, wanted to be financially independent. And buying this business was, I felt, was the key. Now, when I bought the business, the owner retired. Her secretary was older than her and she retired. So Mm. all I inherited was about 900 square feet of lab and one chemist. And I started growing that, and that business started growing and growing. And from the $150,000 a year revenue, which was, that's how the company was for last 30 years. Within four years, the revenue went up to about a million. I started hiring more people. And then I realized that my particular skills are to be able to turn around failing companies. This company wasn't very successful, but I was able to turn it around, made it profitable. And so I said, What if I go buy other companies that are failing? And so I went to the bank, and now I'm a profitable company. So the bank would give me loans. So I bought a company in New Jersey, a company in Michigan, a company in Florida. And I bought about eight different companies. In that process, I ended up borrowing about $24 million from the bank.
1: Oh, From the banks who are not ready to give you 50000
0: <laughs> <laughs> Because now I'm very profitable. I of have a 30, 40% EBITDA in Correct. my businesses. And so through all these acquisitions and organic growth, I built a company by 2008, Mm-hmm. The company had become about sixty-five million dollars in revenues. Wow, some fifteen million or so in EBITDA, and the company was valued about about two hundred million dollars.
1: Mm. Wow,
0: so I got many offers in around two thousand eight. Mm-hmm. To buy maybe half of my company, one private equity offered me 135 million dollars. I said that's mm-hmm. a good deal. Mm-hmm. I think I'm going to take that. So I signed that letter of intent. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, within a week, Lehman Brothers collapsed. Oh my gosh! You remember those days. So this yeah. private equity could not get the funding. Now I said, fine, I will wait and work hard and turn around, make sure that once the economy change turns, we'll be profitable again because. At that time, 90% of my business was early stage drug development. We were doing oh. early stage drug development to help small startups that, that don't have the infrastructure. Right. So my business was just developing this new technology for small startups mm-hmm. and gave it to them so that they can run a company and build a business based on, based on that technology. Unfortunately, in I an mean, economic downturn, Nobody wanted to invest in early stage drug development. And that's why my revenue started falling. And I lost about 70% of my revenue in that recession. And the bank who I owed 24 million got impatient. So I said to them is that, give me time. Mm -hmm. And as the economy recovers, I will be able to retain. Because I had 500 uh, jobs then, about Mm -hmm. 65 PhDs. And I said, you know, I want to keep these jobs. So give me a little bit of time. And I'm working very hard to turn Mm -hmm. the company around. Mm -hmm. But the bank saw that they were getting pennies on their other investment, other loans. Mm -hmm. And here they saw that if they can liquidate me, they can get paid in full. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And that's all was their motivation. So they put a receiver, took all of my business. And oh. the business that I built, and the last time I was leaving, they gave me a box and said, Mr. Tanidar, if you want to put your personal belonging in this box, feel free to. So I'm taking my children's pictures from my desk, and I was leaving the lobby for the last time. Uh, I saw the two trophies I had won, Entrepreneur of the Year Awards from Ernst & Young. Yeah. So I asked them if I could take those, and they said Yes and I put those trophies in my box. And I said, while I was putting those, I said, I'm gonna win a third Entrepreneur of the Year award someday. I come home and I found out that they are going to repossess my cars and my home. So my wife and I put our personal stuff, put it in a budget rental truck. And then at that time I had learned that there was a little lab in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Now my home was in St. Louis, Missouri. So I uh, was told that there's a little lab uh, in uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan that had going out of business. And maybe the landlord is looking to rent that space and it has all these abandoned chemicals that he doesn't know what to do with. So So he's willing to give me a good deal if I could go and take charge of all that, rent that space. So my wife and I drive all night because I didn't want to miss that opportunity. Next day morning, I go talk to the landlord. He gives me the the space for rents, gives me all of the chemicals and all of the things in the lab because he just needed somebody to take charge of it. And I restart my business in 2010. In 2016, now the business has gone to about $12 million in revenues, very profitable. And I got that award again, Entrepreneur of the Year, from the third, third time in Michigan now. And at that time I said, look, I came to this country with $20 in my pocket and a suitcase, I had nothing. And I said, this country has given me so much. I've gotten so much of opportunities. But when I look around, when I see in Michigan, you know, in Detroit area, 25% of poverty and richest nation in the world. And yet people aren't able to pay their mortgage. People aren't able to pay their water bill water set off. And I said, what am I doing accumulating wealth? It's time for me to go help others. I've achieved my American dream, but American dream is not accessible to many in America. And with that thought, I sold my business. And I said, if I can help people, the best way to do it is help is to be the governor of my state. And so I ran for governor, in 2018. Mm. At one time, I was leading the field, the Democratic field, but in the end, I did not win that uh, primary. Uh, Even though I won the city of Detroit, Mm -hmm. I did not win the Democratic primary for governor. So what do I do now? I didn't want it to go back to business. I've been there, done that. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to continue public service. So A state representative position was available, open seat, because of term limits in in the city of Detroit. Now, Detroit has always supported me in the governor's Mm -hmm. race. So I decided to run for that seat. 90% African-American population in that district. That's the third district back then Mm -hmm. of Detroit. Mm -hmm. And I had six other opponents, all African-Americans. And I won that seat with wow. 35% of the votes. Wow. And then I got a chance to serve in the Michigan House as a Detroit's rep. And I served on the Appropriations Committee mm-hmm. and worked on getting a lot of state dollars for education to my district. Mm-hmm. I think I probably brought more state dollars for education and mental health. I work across the aisle Try getting mental health because I heard grandma's mothers telling me that their children who need a psychiatric bed had to wait in emergency rooms for weeks because no bed is available. So I brought money for to rebuild a psychiatric hospital. I brought money to put psychological counselors in high schools where younger people, 10-year, 12-year-olds have issues with mental illness. So I thought if we could help people with that, we could stop the school-to-prison by pipeline. Many of the schools in the poorer areas, low-income areas, were notoriously bad in terms of not having enough supplies. I saw teachers spending their money from their own pocket to try to buy supplies. So we, you know, I worked with the governor and worked with my colleagues to bring up The first time having a per pupil funding equity across the state of Michigan. We got the two years that I worked there, we did historically high education budgets. And there was so much I was able to do with the help of my colleagues and uh, the Democratic governor that, you know, people really appreciated what I did for Detroit. Mm -hmm. And just within two years, with the redistricting, a congressional position opened up and I decided to run for that. And there were eight different candidates running against me. And it was a nine-way race that I won in August of 22. And then I had an opportunity to represent a lot of people. Just about most of the city of Detroit is in my district. Detroit Airport, Ramulus, Gross Point, Highland Park, hamtramck all of the area surrounded by Detroit down River community is in my district. So very, very diverse district. A lot of affluent people as well as a significant part of poverty, racially, Almost half of the district is African American, some Hispanic population. No Indian Americans in the district. Often I joke that the only Indian American I know in my district is my wife. <laughs> but this is, was a tough race and for Congress. And we worked very hard reaching people, meeting people where they are, talking about who I am. Because, you know, I look different than my constituents. I speak differently as an immigrant. And people really didn't know who I was. So it was important for me to go tell them about my story, my struggles. When in 1996, when my children were four and eight years old, I lost their mother to mental illness. And after her death, it was very hard to raise my two boys as a single father. Mm-hmm. And I dealt with mental illness and I understand how hard it is when a member in a family suffers from mental health, how that affects not only that person, but also the rest of the people in the family. And I talked about my experiences, my struggles very openly with my constituents and somehow they saw in me a part of them, part of their own struggle. And perhaps that's the reason why they voted for me.
1: What what an inspirational, I mean, you know, we do this podcast a lot, but I have to tell you, uh, this is one of the more inspirational stories. A uh, lot of questions for you, Sri, for helping others who look at this journey. You were rejected Four or five times for your visa. Now, there are some people who can relate, who can take one, maybe two, maybe three rejections. But you did that. And then also you fainted, but you kept going back for more. You know, that's a characteristic about you that seems to play across your journey, whether as an entrepreneur, you started, you built something big. And it was taken away from you, and you were left with basically those trophies. And then you went back. What do you think uh, that is? And you have such an optimistic demeanor. Let's say if somebody had been rejected, and or even go back with the kind of tough upbringing that you had with limited resources, you. And I have had the pleasure of knowing you. You're one of the more optimistic people. So where is that coming in you from? If you can tell our listeners a little bit about that.
0: Well, you know, a lot of it came from my mother, who also went through tough times. Uh-huh. And I saw her never get discouraged, no matter how hard things get. She stood up, fought back, took care of things. Never really showed the pain as much, as much as just fighting back and it is that feeling when i was a little kid in the school got bullied a lot and i always learned to stand up for myself when i was in poverty i got ridiculed by my rich friends and how the privilege lives their life and the struggles of poverty that i was dealing with and facing with and there's two ways I could have dealt with those situations. I could have put my head down and said, there's just no way I'm going to be able to succeed against all these odds. Mm-hmm. Or I could have said that, how dare this thing happens to me? How dare this bank officer foreclose this on all of my assets and put me out? How dare my boss at the Atomic Research Center doesn't recognize my hard work and I did gone through masters and worked hard and day and night I worked. So it's more about that that fear, the anger in me, the feeling that this is unfair and I'm not going to stand it. I'm not going to accept it. I'm not going to accept this defeat. I'm going to fight this. When I lost my wife to mental illness, a lot of the community really felt They went away. I lost some friends because of that, because people didn't know how to deal with mental illness Mm -hmm. and uh, a loss, something like that. So every time a setback happens, I fought back. Two ways, I could put my head down and just give up, or I can fight. And I always chose the paths to fight because I felt that was not fair. That's not right. And I deserve better. And that's the same spirit I have when I see uh, my constituency, when I see uh, schools in bad shape, when I see the COVID impacting disproportionately to uh, the community, the black and brown community, people not having access to health care, the huge wealth disparity that exists in America, the lack of health care many people uh, struggle through. The food insecurities that I see in a nation as rich as ours, that bothers me. And it mm-hmm. feels that this is not right. This mm-hmm. is not how it's supposed to be. And when I see that disproportional, when I see that, I say that we need to make this fair. We need a fair level playing field for all to succeed. And that's really what motivates me to fight hard.
1: Yeah, but you are doing it in a very optimistic way. Do you think we call it the Indianness, the culture, the surroundings have given you the resilience? Because you have incredible resilience because people have one or two seminal moments in your life. And I, I don't know if you would consider it the job at Baba Research, your boss not really giving you the opportunity, the visa situation, your personal humongous loss of your spouse than the loss of your business, but you always came back in many ways bigger and better. Do you think the upbringing, the culture, the environment has something also to do with that, Sri?
0: Part of it, yes, yes. And when you live in poverty, when you see the disparity in a society, when you see the privileged have an inside track to success and everything that they want or need or get, they get, there is a, some sort of anger that builds in, some kind of feeling that builds in is that this is not fair. And through that disappointment, that anger, but not willing to accept that as the norm, not willing to accept that as the way of life. And I think that's where maybe my upbringing helped me. The value system that my mother gave me, that your word matters, what you do matters. The value system about being transparent, being mm-hmm. honest. So some of the value system my mother gave me was critical. Some of my own feeling that, that we need to have a level playing field, that where a person is born, his or her gender, his or her economic level, none of that should play a part and we need to have a system that's fair to all, accessible to all. And when I saw that the same thing in a richest nation in the world in, in the United States, uh, I just thought that's not fair and that's not acceptable and that's not cannot be the norm and we cannot accept that and we need to fight and that's why, I decided that the racism that I've seen, the destruction of black net worth, whether it is the Tulsa Massacre or right here in Detroit, the Paradise Valley, the black bottoms that got billions of dollars worth of black net worth got destroyed. And the fairness of all of that. How can we make this fair? How can we make a system where the rich doesn't get richer? How do we close this a net black net worth gap, how do we close, create opportunities for people mm-hmm. beyond raising minimum wage? How do we give people the life? How do we give young people that are living in poverty, the hope that they can make it? And yeah. how do we, can we create opportunity? And that's why now, after all that, four times my visa was rejected. Sanjay, the interesting thing is today I sit on the Homeland Security Committee, a committee that is in charge of protecting America's borders and deciding who comes in and who goes out. And I sit on the small business committees. And through that, I'm trying to bring out bills about apprenticeship, about workforce development, creating systems and situations where young people can get the skills they need, whether not everybody needs to go to college. But Mm -hmm. those who choose not to go to college should be able to get trade education, technical skills, technical education, so that they can get good paying jobs and raise a good family. So all of that I'm able to yeah. focus on. And, you know, so this time in my life, I've decided rest of my life I want to devote to public service and because accumulating wealth is no longer my objective. So when I sold my business in 2016, I took a chunk of the money from the sales I gave it to all of my employees, not just the COOs and the treasurers and the top officers. I gave it to everybody, every employee in my company. And then I took some of that money and used that to run for governor's office. So I feel at this stage in my life, my focus is public service and as long as my health permits, and as long as my constituents vote for me and allow me to do this work I want to continue doing this to make level playing field, create opportunities where mm-hmm. none- exist.
1: And like I said, amazing things you know a lot of our guests talk about the role of mentors in their life. Have there been mentors that you think have played a key role in defining where you are right now?
0: I really my parents I would say my I got a lot of my calm, From my father. My father, despite the adversities, remained positive and calm. Mm -hmm. And my mother was the one that had this fighting spirit, never giving up spirit. So the values I got from my parents lasted me a lifetime. But, you know, I'm a great admirer of uh, someone like an Abraham Lincoln who had adversities in his life, plenty of adversity, then he overcome that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Lincoln remains my hero, certainly uh, Dr. Martin Luther King in his struggle for the African-American community, mm-hmm. uh, certainly Mahatma Gandhi. These are my role models. Mm-hmm. But uh, a lot of my resistance, my strength comes from what my mother taught me and what I saw her and how she dealt with adversities and uh, she never gave up.
1: Yeah. I'm just wondering uh, how you feel After those multiple rejections, when you go back to the U.S. consulate as a congressman, it's a pretty ironic uh, situation uh, after all those. But that's also the greatness of this country, the United States of America, I would say. Shree, there is a lot of, and I don't want to make this in any way about uh, politics, a lot of tribalism around the world in terms of groups, etc. One of the things you've mentioned is your district doesn't have any Indian Americans except your wife heavily, African-American, et cetera, what has been your ability that you've been able to reach out in such a way across, which sometimes is hard for, because as I said, there is a tribalism. People stick to either that ideological bent, the thought process, et cetera. And I don't, I'm not looking for a political answer, but there is something in you that has been able to reach out across, right?
0: Yeah. You know, the society segregates us, Mm -hmm. but the gender, our sexual preferences, our religion, our economic Mm -hmm. level, the race, the society kind of divides us. Mm -hmm. But deep down, if you look at it, people are people. People are people. And if you look at people as human beings, not as blacks or not as whites or not as Hispanics, not as Christians or Hindus or Muslims, if you just look at human beings, we all want to live a good life. We want to raise a family. We want to earn a living, take care of things, enjoy a little bit, get good education. Our objectives are the same. At the human level, at the emotional level, we are just people. And the superficial differences that exist among us are not the ones to focus on, but just to focus on just the genuineness of us, just being human. And that's what I did. And I could see through, through all the outside layers, I could see through real people. And when I connected them as real people, and when they saw me for who I am, you know, when we touch hearts, when we have a very close relationship, conversation, openness, transparency, you reach a different level. You transcend beyond the race, beyond the gender, beyond the sexual preferences, beyond anything else. And we connect each other as human beings with the same goals. And we are so alike. The people, my mother, my aunt, my relatives back home in India. And when I meet a person in Detroit, they they remind me of the family that I left behind. Mm -hmm. And so there is at the human level, we are very alike and we have the same angers and frustrations and we have the same aspirations. And if you connect at that level, which is what I was able to do, then that's where you really understand what people's needs are.
1: Very well said, very well said. She, when you look back, I think I know, but what do you think are the one or two seminal events or key things in your life that have shaped you for who you are today?
0: I think it's just living in that poverty, you know, going for hours and days, not having the food to eat, going to the pawn shops and borrowing money, the struggle of dealing with pill collectors and the struggles with not able to take care of my family's healthcare needs. And just how unfair the system can be, and just how the privileged always find a way to get their way, but how the people that are at the bottom of the economic ladder often don't get the opportunities that they deserve. And that's often, it's not anger as much as feeling of a little bit of, this is not right. This is not how it ought to be this doesn't make sense. This is not level playing field or it's just not right. And that's when I want to fight back. And I want to say that the status quo is not acceptable. The status quo is not supposed to be this way. And we cannot accept the status quo just because that's how things have been for decades. We got to fight that. And the same thing with goes with The racism, the systemic racism that, you know, my constituents have expressed and the generations of poverty, some of my constituents have lived in. We really cannot accept that as a normal way of life. And we got to fight and we got to stand up.
1: So poverty and going through that was probably the thing that has driven you to overcome that and then make sure others don't go through that process. You had an incredible journey. Sri, now, when you look back to the Sri who is probably at Bhava Research Center at the job, what would be your advice to that Sri if you were to go back in time, if I gave you a time machine and said, please have a conversation with the Sri at Bhava Research Center, who is a little frustrated with his boss because his boss is giving him a hard time. What would be your conversation with that Sri?
0: I would say to that person that keep dreaming big. Your Mm -hmm. dreams are never too big. So dream high and pursue your dreams. Push for it and don't accept defeats, small defeats or large defeats. Don't accept them. When you have setbacks, fight even harder. Uh, Never give up. Never let them win. You you need to continue to trust in you. I think the number one thing, I never was a genius. I never was very good in academics in my early life. So it's not about being extraordinary. It's just being an ordinary person who has extraordinary dreams. That's how I look at myself as. And I wrote my memoirs and I called it in Marathi. I called it He Shri Chi Chai. I wrote, wrote it in Marathi. And basically... It was saying that I was able to do these things because I had the willpower, not because I was extraordinary, not because I was a genius, not because I was smart, but I had this burning desire to, to succeed. succeed against all odds. So when I started a business, I had no idea, no money, but I wanted to be a business person. I worked hard and I would not take a no for an answer. So I would say to that person is that, Sky's the limit. Just dream big, think through, plan well, be thorough, focus on it, expect to fail, and when you fail, just work even harder to overcome.
1: Ordinary person with extraordinary dreams. What a great message! Because everybody can't get into an IIT or Harvard or MIT, yes. but they can still achieve extraordinary things. That's the message. A great message, Sri. And obviously, your memoir has been there. And I would say to some Hollywood or Bollywood producers out there that there should be definitely be a, a movie because a movie is waiting to be made on uh, this journey. She we end basically with a lightning yeah. round of quick questions. These are just one line, two line questions. This has been Amazing. What is your definition of Indianness? The show podcast is called Indianness, and which I had talked to you before about. But want to hear, because we ask this to every guest, and they have their own definition. What is your definition of Indianness?
0: I think it's just never giving up, fighting, because the country has a large population of poor people, poverty, but has huge dreams and aspirations.
1: Never giving up. That's a good one. She, one person either in India or of Indian origin, not your family, your parents, who's alive, that inspires you or you look up to?
0: I had a great chance to meet with Prime Minister Modi. We almost spent 40 minutes with him when he was in the U.S. And then I went back and met him last month. And, you know, his vision and his dedication and his work ethic, I'm very, very impressed with Prime Minister Modi.
1: So Prime Minister Modi... Wonderful. Shri, this has been an amazing session. Thanks for opening up, especially for our listeners, for who, you know, have had struggles and know that there's a path ahead, but tremendously inspirational story. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks for taking the time, Yeah,
0: Sanjay, thank you for having me. If the viewers want to get a copy of my book that I wrote in English, the English book is called Blue Suitcase. I think they can download it from my website, which is simply shreeforcongress.com. Shri is just S-H-R-I, Yeah,
1: And the book is called Blue Suitcase. The
0: book is called Blue Suitcase and it details some of my early struggles. And also the website will tell you the kind of issues that I am fighting for. So shreeforcongress.com.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Shri. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Sanjay, for having me. Thank you for listening to The Indianist Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future inspirational stories.